Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Fanny's Fallen Avenues. For this episode, we are so excited to welcome our guest, Tyler Hamilton. Tyler Hamilton is a writer, editor, and academic currently working as a freelance literary editor. He has a bachelor's degree from Johnson and Wales University and is currently working on his master's degree in English literature. Having led academic discussions and lectures on the work of Virginia Woolf, Jane Austen, and Albert Camus, he is currently working on a novel based heavily on the Bloomsbury Group. This episode, we are headed to Mansfield Park, where Mr. Rushworth is talking to the Mansfield set about the plans he has for improving his estate at Southerton, and his casual references to altering the landscape have Fanny feeling a little poetic. <laughs> we feel like Captain Bennick would approve. <laughs> so, Tyler, do you want to start us off with the quote in question? Yes. There have been two or three fine old trees cut down that grew too near the house, and it opens the prospect amazingly, which makes me think that Repton, or anybody of that sort, would certainly have the avenue at Southerton down. The avenue that leads from the west front to the top of the hill, you know, turning to Miss Bertram particularly as he spoke, but Miss Bertram thought it most becoming to reply. The avenue? Oh, I do not recollect it. I really know very little of Southerton. Fanny, who was sitting on the other side of Edmund, exactly opposite Miss Crawford, and who had been attentively listening, now looked at him and said in a low voice, Cut down the avenue. What a pity. Does it not make you think of Cooper? Ye fallen avenues, once more I mourn your fate unmerited. He smiled as he answered, I'm afraid the avenue stands a bad chance, Fanny. He's not particularly bothered by the, the avenue, but she turns to him like she really expects him to like really engage <laughs> with the avenues. To be as passionate as she yes. is. Yeah. He does smile at her, and that'll keep her going for at least <laughs> a month. lot of mileage out of those smiles. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, so before we start talking uh, with you, Tyler, a little bit more specifically about, about the avenues in this scene, let's do a little definition and work here about avenues in general. So, so an avenue in this particular reference, we're talking about a landscaped avenue, and it's a straight path or road that's lined with trees or shrubs. And the term comes from the Latin venire, or to come, which explains why avenues are usually used to emphasize the coming to or the approach or arrival at a landscape feature, like a big house like Southerton. And in most cases, the trees planted on the avenue will be you know, planted all at the same time. They're all the same type, and it gives a really uniform appearance along that full length. So it's just a really, really fancy landscaping for your driveway. <laughs> <laughs> so Tyler... We know that Mansell Park is your favorite Jane Austen novel, which is why we are partially why we are discussing it today. And Mansell Park is the novel in which Austen is really obsessed with landscape. We get a lot of good landscape material mm -hmm. in this novel. Why do you think that is? And why do you think it's something that is so often framed through Fanny's perspective? What's interesting about especially the first half of Mansfield Park, is that it's very reminiscent of A Midsummer Night's Dream by William Shakespeare, in that the landscape kind of is a driving force behind the characters' motives and their decisions and their behaviors. Then it also becomes a bit of a mirror for the characters. It reflects back their motives and who they are, and it kind of helps shape them. And I believe the reason why it is so often framed from Fanny's perspective is because throughout the whole novel, Fanny is kind of the moral center. She's kind of the rock in the middle of it all, who's observing it 
And when she looks at nature, when she's in nature, she doesn't want anything from it. You know, the others who are more modern, they look at nature and they see what can be improved about it to fit them and to fit their kind of MO in life, you know, their rank in society. And Fanny doesn't really see it that way. Instead of looking at nature and seeing what can be improved, Fanny looks at nature and sees what she can improve about herself and how she is improving as a person and growing as a person. I definitely see that with the way that she, the way that she is constantly more of just like in awe of nature rather than trying to, to alter it. But I think that that's why it's such an interesting thing for her to be so engaged with the avenue. The avenue is, it's a human feature. It's a, it's an artificial feature that's been put into the landscape. And yet she is very much so opposed to it being altered by these improvements that are being kind of bandied about throughout the first half of the novel. I think the reason why she's so concerned with it being altered is because it means destruction of the trees there. And what I found interesting that I read in one of my Mansfield Park books is that the trees in question are oak trees, which um, at the time were used to build naval ships. Fanny may have a connection to those trees in particular. You know, when she hears oak, she may because of her brother, William. Right. So I think she has kind of a visceral reaction to not just the destruction of the trees, but to the important symbolism of the trees and what the trees represent, the importance they have in her life. Well, there's something about an oak tree, right? That when you think of an oak, you think of sturdy, you think of permanence, you think of lasting for forever. and Which is why it's England's national tree. Symbol, yeah. And especially for a character like Fanny, who doesn't have permanence, right? She's been shunted from her house to be the impoverished relative. And she doesn't really have that same sense of stability. So it's like, oh, you're going to cut down those poor trees. Why don't you just cut me down? Right. Yeah. Which is an interesting point to bring up when we get to the evergreens as well. Because, you know, in that scene, Fanny is like hardcore projecting herself onto (laughs) the evergreens. Mm -hmm. And she's talking about how, you know, they grew better in uh, Mrs. Grant's garden because the soil was better there. Kind of saying how she became who she is because she was moved from Portsmouth to Mansfield. So the part that you're talking about when Fanny is talking about the evergreens, it's really interesting also because... Fanny often talks of nature as having a nearly sacred quality to it. We see that in the Fallen Avenues conversation, but then here again with with Mary Crawford and the and, and the Evergreens. So why do you think that's such an important thing to be drawing attention to? So to me, and she kind of says this to Mary Crawford in that scene, when she is in nature is when she really has time to process her thoughts, form her opinions. You know, we know she's a great reader. So I think that's when she takes what she's read and, you know, forms her own perspectives. So I think that in in many ways, nature is sacred to her because it's very meditative for her. It's where she can kind of figure out who she is and come to peace with where she's at in life and, you know, really draw up her opinions on who's around her and what's going on around her. In that scene, especially because she starts talking about the mind and memory, she begins to see the landscape as kind of like a, a universal oneness, like evidence of the divine and her role in that kind of world. I think that that's actually a really interesting thing. You know, we talk about it as a type of church. I do think that that's true. I think that obviously we see that again at the parsonage, 
But even in the in the quote that we get from Cooper, the fact that the part that she's quoting from, it's from a Cooper, a long poem by Cooper called The Task. And first of all, let's just, you know, I want to preface this. The task is, is broken into sections. The section that we're getting this quote from is called The Sofa, which is just <laughs> hilarious to me. The first line of the poem is, I sing the sofa. And it's just like, you don't think this is going to go anywhere good. But, you know, he, he really does go on to something that's actually kind of interesting. But the part that she's particularly referencing has a lot of the themes that I think you're talking about, Tyler. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a portion of it because I think it really kind of drives home some of these, these elements. So Fanny is the one who says, ye fallen avenues once more, I mourn your fate unmerited. And then Cooper's poem continues, once more rejoice that yet a remnant of your race survives. How airy and how light the graceful arc, yet awful as the consecrated roof re-echoing pious anthems while beneath the checkered earth seems restless as a flood brushed by the wind. And just kind of stopping there, you can actually see the imagery that, that Cooper is using is incredibly religious. The graceful arches, the consecrated roof, he's basically creating a, a mind image of the avenue as kind of the vaulted ceilings of a chapel. It's like a cathedral made out of trees. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And to be so like from you know, just hearing a snippet of a conversation about a fallen avenue, she goes right to Cooper. Yeah. She recalls it instantaneously, which is actually like mad props to her because she's got that kind of locked away. I mean, as we've discussed previously, they didn't have television back then. True. Everyone just had like reams of poetry and little like snippets of essays just memorized and just (laughs) tossing them off like nothing. It's really, truly one of my favorite parts about anytime you're reading, like a classic novel, is just how everybody seems to... Extemporaneously just pull out wit. Yeah. Not a problem at all. But yes, all jokes aside, Zan, I I do think, like you said, it is indicative of like, this is something that's very close to her heart, clearly. Yeah. And and she, you know, because we are joking about, you know, people, people do do the extemporaneous quotes just to like, to show off, to dazzle the crowds. She's not doing it that way. This is, you know, like you said, this is a very sincere utterance meant only for Edmund. Yes. And, you know, because that's his, that's her audience. Edmund is the audience for her whole life. So. <laughs> yeah, really. With the um, evergreen discussion, one of my favorite things is that Fanny is going off on this tangent, like totally not with us on Earth anymore as she's speaking. And when she's done, Mary Crawford is just like, okay, anyway. And like <laughs> continues on this like other thing that it's like so perfectly timed which again it's just you know austin's humor that it's just like you know and then fanny's like okay i'll just keep it to myself it's fine (laughs) really she needed her bestie marion dashwood to show up and the two of them would have had a great time just walking in the benick would have worked too yeah the three of them (laughs) marion benick fanny cooper fan club like yeah really (laughs) it is the ultimate emo for trees fan club i love it yes absolutely (laughs) the fact that i mean we we talked about trees obviously in the the marianne and dead leaves episode but here we're again getting a very we're getting very specific references to very specific types of trees which i think the evergreen is is equally symbolic you know you're talking you talked about the symbolism of of the oak i think the evergreen is clearly just as significant symbolically. So Tyler, why do you think Fanny is so immediately invested in the concept of the avenue? Like, you know, as we said, she just pulls this poetry out of her head. She's she's there, you know, she's immediately just having this reaction. Part of it, I think, is that, you know, the her ears perk up because I think the um, idea of 
destroying these oak trees that line this avenue is just she doesn't like it and it, it kind of shocks her enough to bring it up to Edmund. I think immediately the imagery of an avenue of oak tree stands out to her right away that she is kind of able to pull this quote right out from thin air, you know, apparently. And to bring it to Edmund, who, you know, really couldn't care less <laughs> about what she is saying about the avenue. Which is so funny because she expects him to like be immediately triggered by it as well. Well, we have to imagine that his, I mean, so much of her taste, right, was formed by Edmund and that a lot yes. of the reading and things that she did were books that he gave her and sort of encouraged her to read. So we don't get the lovesick montage, but I'm just picturing them now like on some bench with gentle leaves falling to the ground and, you know, like a babbling brook in the background. <laughs> He's just reading her Cooper and she's just like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life. In a poetic love hate. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> just like she gets at the parsonage with Mary Crawford, where she's just like not there. Yeah, an evergreen trance is what she goes into. Yeah, at the exactly. <laughs> and just imagine Mary Crawford just looking at her like, what? What are you <laughs> what talking <is> about? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know what's great about Fanny is that she doesn't speak up a lot. She's more of a quiet observer and she, you know, is calculating her opinion and all that. But when she does speak up, it's very profound what she says. Every time, like, you know, this with quoting the poem about the avenue. So it's really interesting to me that when she is able to kind of really choose her words to make an impact with everything she says. And to the point where she really begins holding up a mirror to everybody and just kind of being like, you know, this is who you are, just so you know, this is how you're acting. Which I also feel she does in the Evergreen conversation. Yeah, I was, I was saying there's a little portion here where she actually talks about the multiple facets of the of memory that, you know, the Evergreen is, is sparking ideas of memory specifically. She's like, that's that's the most amazing human faculty that we have. And the Evergreen is like that. And she says, the memory is something so retentive, so serviceable, so obedient, at others so bewildered and so weak, and at others again so tyrannic, so beyond control. We are, to be sure, a miracle every way, but our powers of recollecting and of forgetting do seem particularly past finding out. At this point, you know, Mary Crawford is like, well, the next phrase is, Miss Crawford, untouched and inattentive, had nothing to say. <laughs> right. Just like, whatever. She's like, okay, fine. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that Fanny has actually had this moment of being like, when she's talking about like, oh, it's it's so obedient and serviceable, she's talking about like, she has used memory. I mean, she's the memory device for the whole plot, really. She's watching and retaining everything. But then she talks about it. It's bewildering and weak. And that's Edmund when he just doesn't keep track of the things that Mary keeps saying that are like red flags for their particular relationship. And then at the, the other time, you know, so tyrannic, so beyond control. And it's, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I've never read that passage as a mirror to each character, but I think it really tracks. I love Fanny in philosopher mode. It's oh, same. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. And really like why I get so annoyed when, I mean, I don't want to say annoyed because everybody's allowed to read and interpret books however they like. I do strongly believe that, but I do get a little bit defensive when people are like, oh, Fanny's so boring. I know. She's not loud. I mean, she's no one, she's not here to, you know, be loud and entertaining. She's not an extroverted personality at all, but there's so much going on there. Like yeah. she's very thoughtful. She has a lot of opinions. Like she isn't just this cardboard cutout. You know what I mean? But it's like, you have to look for it. You have to find the moment. Like many an introvert, she needs time to formulate her thoughts. This is all obviously stuff that she's been thinking of over time. And then 
sometimes maybe comes out in a moment with somebody like Mary Crawford who doesn't appreciate it. But... <laughs> right, of course. But I mean, do any of them really appreciate it when she does? I mean, later, in hindsight, I'm sure they do. But I mean, there are so many times where Fanny speaks up and they're all just like, oh, cool. And like move on <laughs> to something else, you know? Well, see, and I have to say, I am definitely someone who was guilty of thinking that Fanny was boring for a very long time. I get it. The first time I read it, like I said, it, I, I've, I've said this before, it took me a while to kind of get traction on the book because I couldn't get invested in Fanny. And then, you know, once once the play happens and once Mary Crawford and her start to have real exchanges, like then, then you start seeing what Fanny is capable of. The power she holds. Yeah, yeah. And you realize that she is quietly sitting in the corner a lot of the time, but it's never passive, which is the fascinating thing. And again, you, you pull it out. And so- Fanny has become someone that I have grown to admire because I didn't see that initially. It's it's something that I had to grow to appreciate. And perhaps I didn't want to see it or appreciate it because I'm also an introvert and I didn't want to be seen as the person in the back of the room. Everybody wants to identify with Elizabeth. Oh, Fanny, yeah. But I think a lot of us actually have quite a bit of Fanny in us. Agreed. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, that's what draws me to her. When I was growing up, there were many times where I felt like I was in a room full of people and I was completely alone. And, you know, my, my brother is very much the brain of the family. He's incredibly smart. You know, he's a history teacher in London, and he does all these great things. And I just remember growing up feeling like, in some ways, I had to compete with that. And similar to Fanny Price, when I would kind of introduce ideas at like, um, during like a dinner discussion or something, I feel like a lot of people would kind of be like, uh -huh, cool. Anyway, like kind of brush me off and treat my interests like they were silly, or that like I was in some ways, silly and not as important. So I really identify with Fanny Price in that way, because I kind of learned how to create my own worth and my own world really in solitude. And I really value solitude these days. And I think a reason why I love Mansfield Park so much is because I was able to identify with Fanny Price in that way, in that kind of more profound way, more than I would like to admit. But if I'm really looking at it. I think that is absolutely what draws me to her. And realizing that even though she is introverted, and even though she does spend a lot of time in solitude to kind of process her feelings and how she feels, and her opinions, she is still rather powerful. And she is still rather profound in the things she says and how she chooses her words. And really the work she does at Mansfield Park. I mean, you know, they go all through a transformation, thanks to Fanny Price, really. Yeah, she's the linchpin. Once once all that chaos happens at Mansfield Park, they need her to come back because she's the only one who's actually seen all of the stuff that's that's now, you know, taking over. She saw all of it coming. In my opinion, I think once we see Mansfield Park start like its restructuring process, it is with Fanny as a foundational piece of Mansfield. She's no longer ancillary. Yeah. Once again, the like the rock of it all. Well, for a character who I do think is often unfairly criticized as weak or not very interesting, I think that Fanny is one of the strongest heroines in all of Austen. I think, especially to a modern audience, the idea of her refusing Henry Crawford doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But the strength that she embodies when she is like, no, I won't marry him. Fine. Go ahead and send me back home. I mean, obviously, it's difficult. She isn't doing it with a Valkyrie attitude. You know, she's not right. like, I defy you, <laughs> Sir Thomas, right. you know? And I think because she doesn't say it in that sort of, like, you can't boss me around sort of way, 
people don't realize, actually, even though she is refusing quietly, she's still refusing. And that's a really big deal. So yeah, I mean, it, it makes so much sense to me. Like, I'm really kind of digging this whole person as tree <laughs> kind of concept. And it makes sense that she, yeah, she would identify with these kind of these stalwart trees, right? That they're just, yeah. they're doing their thing. They put down their roots, slow and steady, growing over time, not here to be flashy. You will appreciate the shade of this tree, yeah. actually. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That also begs the question is that, is there a real hero of Mansfield Park? And is there a real villain of Mansfield Park? You know, I mean, they're all kind of acting in a way that I think, you know, even Austin would argue that anybody of that time would have acted. And yes, you know, we could say that Mary Crawford didn't go about things the best way and neither did Mariah or Henry Crawford. You know, they could have taken a little bit more time to think things through. Choices were made. (laughs) Right. Right, Right. exactly. But I mean, you know, when you think about it, you know, Mariah was kind of, I don't want to say forced into this marriage with, you know, someone that I think Edmund refers to as stupid. And she's clearly not happy. Henry Crawford comes from this modern life in London where he's a bit of a libertine, you know, and he loves having women fawn over him. You know, they're acting out of their natural, you know, and and of course, Fanny's just like sitting back and be like, oh my God, you know, like (laughs) this is just a total mess of a situation, but it's hard to blame them for it. And it's hard to say you're a bad person. Right. Or that Fanny is a really good person. Because there are times where you're kind of like, Fanny, get off it. <laughs> you know, like, lighten up. <laughs> she's sitting there, like, secretly moaning that she can't ride the horse. She's just kind of, like, sad watching the horse ride. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's just like, you know, come on. But that also sucks of Edmund to just, like... Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Listen, I will never blame Fanny for anything. I will always blame Edmund for everything. <laughs> I, You know what? Yeah, I agree. And obviously, it's her choice. I support her choice. I support Fanny doing what she wants to do. And if being with Edmund makes her happy, <laughs> I just, I would probably decline being a bridesmaid at that wedding is all I'm saying. Absolutely. I don't know why that's killing me so much. <laughs> Like, if I'm best friends with Fanny and I got to go to dinner parties for the rest of my life with Edmund, I got to sit next to that wet cabbage and like, ugh, no, thank you. What a drip. Yeah. Dude who is in love with the wrong girl for the entire book is like my least favorite romance Mm, trope. mm -hmm. Occasionally that comes up in historical romance where the, like, I'll get into it. I was like, oh, is this a whole like, she was there the whole time thing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, no. Delete. I'm not here for that. Yeah. Yeah. And the way Edmund does it, and I know that like towards the end of the novel, the narrator is kind of like, oh, I'm not going to use dates, you know, but (laughs) he's like, oh, Mary Crawford didn't work out. The whole thing kind of sucked. And then he like turns to Fanny. He's like, "Nah, you're there. You're there. You know? <laughs> yeah. She has been singing You Belong With Me over and over and over. Right. And exactly. <laughs> exactly. And Edmund is just like, also, I just feel like Edmund sometimes is just not with us here on Earth. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's just, you know, somewhere else. And that's fine. <gasps> Fanny loves it. So, Going back to my longtime theory, which is that Edmund is a stone cold fox. Like he is a smoke show. He is the hottest man alive, which is the only reason it explains by any of these, and particularly Mary Crawford, who's very sophisticated. The only thing that I can think of is just that he's a wet cabbage, but he is a foxy cabbage. Just like so hot, so hot. Cause yeah, she over, she overlooks Tom Bertram for Edmund. So there's, there's got to be something more than this personality. Right. And Mary Crawford and Tom Bertram are like your college friends, you know, like they they have similar interests. They love to party. <laughs> she kind of just like pivots away from him to Edmund. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, what is he bringing to the table? It's a head scratcher. 
He looks like an Adonis. It is the only explanation. It, it is the only right. explanation. I could write right. a dissertation on this. <laughs> the hill that I will die on is that Edmund Bertram, not that interesting, but wow, what a looker. <laughs> Which sometimes you can work with. You know, I mean, I feel like we've all been there. <laughs> so, Tyler, tell our listeners where people can find you online. People can find me on Instagram at tyler.hamilton and that way you won't be directed to the cyclist's page because oh. <laughs> I get tagged in photos of him all the time but yeah people can find me at tyler.hamilton on Instagram which is really cool because being more introverted that's how I find connection I love having discussions about literature film art I'm currently doing a deep dive reread of Virginia Woolf which has been really fun connecting with other wolf readers in that way. And also soon I will be sharing details about my Bloomsbury Group project. Woohoo! Looking forward to that. Thank you very much. I'm very excited. Thank you so much for joining us for this discussion of Fanny. Yes. Thank you, Tyler. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You can find us on Instagram at The Thing About Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. And we so appreciate everyone who has been sharing and positively reviewing the podcast. Here's this lovely five-star Apple podcast review from Vegas J-Knight. They say, I'm in J-Knight heaven. These co-hosts are so knowledgeable about Jane Austen and her works and her time and listening to them talk all things Austen is so much fun, but also makes me feel smart. Question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> I highly, highly recommend, which is just what a generous, such a kind, lovely review. Yeah, thank you so much. Stay tuned for next episode in which we'll be talking with our guest, Dr. Rena Jones, about Mr. Woodhouse's concerns about London air. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.